Hey friends, welcome to Wild Confidence Podcast, where we help one another find, keep, and share our confidence in Christ. I'm your host, Ainsley B. It's an honor to bring you some inspiring conversations with amazing guests. Before we hear today's conversation, I want to kindly ask if you'd leave a five-star review and share this episode with a friend who might like it. I'd also love to connect on Instagram, so find me at Ainsley B. Okay, I can't wait anymore. Let's get to know our guest. Josh Porter is a pastor of Teaching and Creative Vision at Van City Church in Vancouver, Washington. He's also a former member of the experimental art punk band Showbread and the author of the novel Punk Rock versus the Lizard People. Josh Porter, welcome to Wild Confidence. How are you today? I'm great. So far, so good. Nobody knows this listening to the podcast right now, but we were having a great conversation before it started about Garth Brooks and soda and babies. So yes. I'm, I'm ready to go. And Homestar Runner. And Homestar Runner. It re- really covered the gamut. <laughs> That's how I opened our conversation. So really, if you wanted to be as caught off guard as possible, I feel like I may have uh, nailed it. Yeah, that just got me ready. I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> Oh, this is, this is indeed wild. (laughs) Okay. So as we were having this conversation, your book, Death to Deconstruction came out. I'm looking at it right here. I have it in my hand. Oh, wow. Look at that. There it is. Yeah. There it it. is. It's amazing. I'm obsessed. I love everything you, whenever I was like Googling um, all the, the details about it, the look of it, the posts that you've made on social media, I just love it all. I love the look of everything. So I'm already a fan. I haven't gotten to um, dive too deep into it, but I have started it and I'm very excited to continue. But it literally just, as we're having this conversation, came out yesterday. It's true, yeah. And and it hit number one in Christian faith on Amazon, which is truly incredible. So my first question is just, how do you feel in general that this book, Baby, is out in the world? It's a strange feeling. 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, you you understand. We were talking about this a second ago, but it feels as if you spend an impossibly long stretch of time working on a thing, and then it almost becomes objectified to the point that it ceases to be this <laughs> book that you've written and more like a, a project that involves all these different people. And, you know, yeah. when you publish a book and you have to have all these weird conversations with editors and marketing people. And, um, and then and it takes so long the publishing industry is so slow that it begins to feel as if you forgot what's even in the book by the time the book <laughs> exactly finally comes how it out. Feels. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then it does. And then I think the strangest part is people that I know personally, you know, close friends of mine that are kind and gracious enough to buy the book. They didn't even tell me. They just said, like, look what came in. And they send me a picture. And I'm like, oh, immediately so humbled and encouraged. Mm-hmm. That, wow, what a great friend this is. And then I go, oh, crap, they're reading the stuff I wrote. <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> That's it. That is, there's nothing more true than what you have just said. It's so like, <laughs> wow, that is incredible. Like, I've done this thing. And then it's like, wait. Everyone knows that I've done this thing now, and you can just read the guts that I spilled out into these pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And reading a terrifying. book takes a while, but uh, it takes a lot longer to write it. So, someone, <laughs> you know, as a reader, the, you consume the experience and then pass judgment on it. And I do this as a reader as well. You know, I sit sure. down with a novel and over a few days or whatever, you know, depending on time, go, all right, that's done. I liked it or didn't like it. And then, yeah. You- <laughs> 
another book. Huh? And that's what people are doing now. So hopefully it works out. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so right. There's somebody who like shared about it, about my book um, on their Instagram that I was unprompted, didn't know them. And I was just like, wow, that is really so kind. Like that just means so much. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, they don't know who I am. Like to them, it was just a book. It's not like yep. there's not like a... They're not like, wow, I, now I have to go see who this author is and find out about, you know, all these things. No, they're just like, yeah, this is a good book. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And to yeah. me, it's like, you just moved my mountain. You know, you just. I know. Truly. I know. It's so strange. <laughs> it's so strange. And then, you know, people are like, <laughs> they're whittling away at it like off and on between meals and stuff. The way I do when I read a book. But sure. this is something that you had to like spill blood over to complete. It's just, a, it's a strange phenomenon. But I'm very grateful that anyone would care enough to even give it a shot, let alone read the whole thing and process it. And, you know, so. Absolutely. I can't wait to just dive into this because this topic has been such a a hot topic lately in my conversations with people and the conversations I've overheard. So um, I'm definitely pumped. And so it's titled Death to Deconstruction. And my question is A, what is even deconstruction? But then also there's the term deconversion. And what is the difference between those two? Yeah, uh, the well, you know, the problem with using the word deconstruction in your title is that it means a lot of different things to different people. But I think it's fair to say that in the kind of um, spiritual pop culture conversation, deconstruction has been become a junk drawer term for the phenomenon of young, mostly Western American, it, it kind of is localized in one demographic. And that demographic is, I know that there's exceptions to every rule, but st- statistically speaking, usually millennial white um, <laughs> evangelical Christians who embark on a process of uh, taking down the faith that they were inherited, that they were handed at, you know, birth in their upbringing or, you know, in a youth group culture, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, deconversion is when the process of deconstruction concludes in zero uh, Jesus, zero Bible, zero church, like the conscious mm. decision to, I no longer um, adhere to anything whatsoever within the Christian movement, or even maybe like a, a becoming atheist or agnostic. Deconstruction, to me, has less integrity than deconversion. And I say this as someone who was in the in a very painful deconstruction process for years. That's what the book's about. But because um, deconstruction kind of wants to have its cake and eat it too. You, you want to be like, I'm mad at evangelicalism, or I'm, I'm legitimately hurt by my church experience, or, you know, upbringing, things that happened to me very real and authentic gripes and pain. Um, so you want to take it apart, tear it down, but preserve some semblance of spirituality. Like I like some of the stuff Jesus said, but not some of the other things. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to borrow from, you know, Eastern mysticism or borrow from Hinduism or Buddhism and infuse that with Jesus. You sort of creating a personal pan spirituality of your own design that complements what you would like to be true about the world it sort of pats you on the head and doesn't really ask anything of you and you don't disagree with it because you made it up or you pieced it together like a Frankenstein's monster. Um, 
And it becomes eventually an untenable way of life because no one can carry out a worldview like that with any kind of pragmatic consistency. So deconversion to me makes a lot more sense. It's the the willingness to just say like, you know what, I just don't believe this stuff anymore and I'm out. I'm out completely. Um, but I think everybody who wants to try and follow Jesus has to transform the things that they believe over time. That's an inevitability of belief. You know, in, mm-hmm. in theology, we just call it spiritual formation or you call it uh, the process of transformation. And that involves giving up some things you believed at some point theologically or some things that were handed to you in your upbringing. But it it stays in the house of your belief and spirituality it's more like renovation than it is deconstruction deconstruction is like a sledgehammer rather than a you know it's a demolition project yeah so you went through this process what why did you go through this process at all well i was raised in the deep south in southeast georgia oh Um, wow okay yeah and i spent the first 28 years of my life in georgia in a Southern Baptist tradition, and this is not a commentary on all Southern Baptist theology or the den- denomination itself, but my little expression was uh, deeply conservative and fundamentalist, and it was a little neighborhood church. And so, uh, and this was during the 80s and 90s. So it was like the whole satanic panic, cultural apprehension, <laughs> and we're afraid of uh, art and film and um, the moral majority on the right before the moral majority was on the left currently. And uh, and I was wired, you know, as just to a fault, but as my personality to be allergic to homogeneity, you know, anything that felt to me like a tradition for the sake of tradition, I was like, Oh, I don't like it. Um, mm-hmm. deeply rebellious by nature. So that was kind of like a, a volatile environment, um, in which to be raised and felt mm-hmm. very lonely and estranged from the world of my upbringing, but at the same time wanted to belong to something, even though I pushed against belonging to anything. Yeah. Um, And then at some point as a teenager, I discovered uh, punk rock music and punk rock culture. And that to me was uh, spoke my language, so to speak. It was, you know, like a, a rebellious by nature and deliberately ran contrary to the status quo and was um, cynical and skeptical and so I I found a a home there, or at least a temporary home there. Yeah. But it alienated me from the the you know Southern evangelicalism of my upbringing, and then all these you know legitimate mounting questions that I think all of us get, especially those of us who are raised in the church, questions about the Bible and the historicity of Jesus and uh, theism in general, the existence of God, got swept up into that cynicism and that hurt and the hypocrisy that I witnessed. And it kind of became a, I don't know what I think, but I don't want to think this anymore. And if this is what it means to be a Christian, then I want out of that. And I'll, yeah. I'll figure out what, what I want to do and who I want to be, but it's not going to be here. And then that began like a, a years long process of painful wrestling and struggling to deconstruct or, or remain faithful or something in between. Yeah. So as you went through this process, I guess I'm thinking like, if I were to tell my friends and family that I'm going through this process, they would be like, what is happening? So were the people around you shocked? What did they think and how'd they react? 
it was very painful for the people in my life that loved me. Um, and you know, this is in a pre-internet era, so it wasn't like I make it made a big brave Instagram post like I'm leaving the church. <laughs> it was just like a mostly private and um pri by private, I mean the people who knew me knew uh that I had these questions, but they could see the writing on the wall. They're like, Josh has never been comfortable and he asked these questions. And you know, the the example I use in the book is that like I'd I'd always and still do love dinosaurs and paleontology. Mm -hmm. And so I would read about dinosaurs and that, you know, became a riff between me and my church and my, you know, superiors when they're like, you know, it seems like you believe in evolution or something. And I was just like a, a kid that yeah. was reading about dinosaurs and going like, well, I don't know, the book says this and that's interesting to me. And I didn't make a, a, a or didn't, um, realize any inherent contradiction i was happy to believe in the bible i was happy to believe in dinosaurs but there yeah. was there was always this like oh be careful josh you're you're on you're you know on dangerous uh or thin ice and that continued especially when i when i discovered punk rock and was drawn to this other kind of and this is in georgia like rural georgia so that's yeah. not like there's some kind of scene to join or anything i was mostly admiring something from afar but it shaped, you know, my personal aesthetic and the things that I liked and what I was listening to. So there was this real, like, I was still going to church and participating in youth group and, and everyone's like, oh man, we're really worried about you. We're praying for, you know, that's the kind of Southern colloquialism for, yes. I'm scared that you're a heretic was I'm, we're all <laughs> praying for you, you know, bless your heart. Uh. <laughs> um, and at the time, I think that because of my wiring again, to a fault, part of me appreciated in an immature way um being combative and i liked mm. uh getting a rise out of people and i liked creating conflict and stirring things up um again not this is not a brag that was immaturity on my part and i was very young but sure. then at the same time there was this internal paradox where another part of me wanted to be accepted and approved uh, like i wanted the people who loved me to approve of me and celebrate me and recognize um, good things about me. So that creates this sense of, you know, um, almost subconscious loneliness where you want to belong, but you don't want to belong and you want the blessing, but you also don't want the blessing because you don't yeah. want to be associated with that whole thing. So it's a very painful place to be, especially as a young person, because you can't, I can talk about it now and at least articulate some of it, but I couldn't have possibly, I, I was not self-aware at the time. So all you have is the pain, you know, and the confusion. Mm -hmm. And I just 100% relate to where you were at as far as like demographic, you know, the Southern, I'll pray for you, all of those things. And I think that that is such a launching pad for needing or wanting to figure, figure it out, you know, really figure it out for yourself where your faith is your own or if you're going to continue in that faith. Y'all, it is happening. I am so excited to finally bring you the book that I've been working on called Don't Date a Boo Boo Dude. It is a guide to raise your standards, realize your worth and remove shame from the dating game. I'm writing this book on a mission that girls everywhere will embrace a wild confidence in their identity in Christ and fulfill the calling that God has placed on their lives. Y'all, it's time to raise the bar, link arms, and fix our crowns. 
The book is available now. Go get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all the places, all the things. I'm so excited to share this with you. So as you went through this process, where'd you end up? What was your, what was the end result of the deconstruction or deconversion, if you will? Well, the spoiler alert is that I'm a pastor now. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, I think that because that's, that's the case and it's, you know, it says so on the back of the book that I'm a pastor and the title, the not so subtle title of the book is death to deconstruction that, there have been people, at least that I've seen online, who presuppose, without having read the book, they presuppose that it's some kind of evangelical rant against honest questions, honest, legitimate questions and wrestling with spirituality. But the truth is that the entire book is about my own um, painful struggle with deconstruction. Um, and I think that the conclusion is so surprising to people. And this is what I've realized over innumerable conversations with, not just as a pastor, but, you know, with acquaintances, neighbors, or traveling, playing music is that, huh, so you have this story, but then at the end of it, you become a pastor and not not just a, a pastor, but like, a, I would describe myself as deeply committed to the the historic Jesus movement, like uh, orthodox in my belief, meaning I, you know, I belong to the Jesus tradition, not like um, out there and what, you know, critics would describe as progressive or, yeah. you know, like I, I, I think I would surprise people in that I have a deeply traditional theological position on things like the Bible and the resurrection of Jesus and church. Obviously, you know, I'm a pastor, so I believe in church. Yeah. And I found the deconstruction movement ultimately untenable. I found that it um, was as painful um, a place to live as it was a a place to journey, meaning, you know, you expect to go through painful change when you uh, agree to a process of possibly abandoning things that you believed at one point in time. But Mm -hmm. you do so with the presupposition that there might be relief at the end of the of the journey and that in the end you'll be, you'll be freer and happier and you'll find some peace. And because I'm so allergic to the tradition for tradition's sake and the whole idea of like a herd mentality and their rules, and you have to think these things or you're out. It seemed to me as if I had traded them on one side of the religious spectrum for another set on the other (laughs) side. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and, when I was a kid, fundamentalism was localized almost entirely on the right. Um, and now as, you know, almost 40, fundamentalism is localized almost entirely on the left. And it's the same kind of, they're using the same exact rule book that the religious right used in the 80s and 90s of like the moral police and the word police and um, things like outrage culture and cancel culture to me uh, feel re- deeply familiar. I'm like, I remember this. Yeah, <laughs> I was alive yeah. in the 80s. Um, it's just yeah. the other uniform and progressive yeah. spirituality. It, it couldn't keep a community around itself because there's no uniform belief. There's no like shared standard of we will live by this code together. And I think all human beings, this is not unique to Christians or even to religious people. All human beings want a code. They want a community. They want to belong to a, something. I think that you know, that idea that we would sacrifice part of ourselves or our youth or our our autonomy even in the mm-hmm. name of something bigger than ourselves 
is something that speaks to the human condition. And that, to me, was nowhere to be found in the deconstruction movement or in progressive spirituality because it's hyper subjective and, you know, the even the creed of you do you or, yeah. you know, hashtag do what makes you happy or, you know, yeah. is so um, painfully lonely because yeah. everyone is putting together their own personal pan spirituality and not, none of them resemble one another. So there's no... Or, or at least not across the board. So there's no standard of right belief and orthodoxy. There's no shared code of life. It's just uh, we agree on what we're against, which is tribalism, not community. It's we all agree we yeah. don't want to be evangelicals. That's not enough to build a, a community and a shared way of life. Yes, I, the the idea of a pan spirituality is really sticking in my head because I'm like, that's so true. Would you, is that the same thing? Would you say that's the same thing as like cherry picking is I've heard that phrase a lot. Yeah, absolutely. It, and, you know, we, the deconstructionists, and I was one of them, accuse the stereotypical evangelicals of cherry picking and, and rightfully so it's a fair critique. And, you know, to be clear, I've spent years of my, you know, creative vocation critiquing evangelicalism. So I'm not like a sure. sympathizer with the religious right or anything. But they rightly accuse evangelicals of cherry picking the scriptures, meaning that the easy stereotypical critique is that like, oh, they care a lot about moralism and sexuality, but not a lot about what Jesus has to say about money or yeah. justice or race, or, you know, those kinds of things. Sure. Yeah. But then the this group on the left does the exact same thing. They care a lot about pointing out that Jesus had stuff to say about judgment and Jesus has stuff to say about justice and equality. Um, but, you know, we don't really want Jesus to comment on things like sexuality or we don't want yeah. Jesus to comment on. Everybody likes Jesus when he's good for pull quotes and he's great yeah. for pull quotes. You know, historically, mm -hmm. we've he's Jesus gets quoted all the time without being cited because he yeah. has so many profound original things to say. But if you read him long enough, he's going to provoke you personally. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things I liked most about Jesus, even not even as a Christian, as an artist. I like the idea of being provoked or even being offended to a certain degree because I'm skeptical of anything that seems to be telling me exactly what I want to hear all the time. Yeah. And that's what I felt deconstruction eventually becomes is uh, we're not really being asked uh, to do anything we don't want to do. We're being accommodated in every way. And I think everyone realizes, at least to a certain degree, that in order to give your life over to something else, there has to be some dimension of self-denial. You have mm -hmm. to relinquish some part of yourself in the name of not just something bigger than you, but even in the name of like love. You know, you're you're a parent, you understand yeah. you have to surrender your yeah. autonomy and your own desires in the name of something bigger than you. And deconstruction makes this kind of cotton candy promise. And I'm, I'm speaking hyperbolically. I know it's more nuanced than that, but the idea is that like, you don't have to believe all that stuff. You can, you do, you can, you do you, you can yeah. do what makes you happy. And if it sits wrong with you, that's because it's bad. It's oppressive. It's wrong. You should only sign up for the things that feel really good and affirming and that, that already bless what you want to believe about the world. Um, and that not only seemed, you know, intellectually untenable to me, it it seemed practically untenable. I, you can't right. actually live that way. 
Right. That's so true. There's there's a quote in the book that I feel like uh, this leads right into it. And I was so, this is the quote that I was like, I, I have to read this book. And it says, when we sanitize the Bible, reducing it to mystic spiritual bedtime stories, our effort to create an inoffensive Christianity, ironically, creates a Jesus no one really cares about following. What? Like that, when I read that, I was like, yeah, this will be where I spend my, the last hour of my day is in this book because it's just so, I, I think that your perspective is so refreshing because it's, you know, you're on the other side of this. You are a pastor. You've done so much homework, so much um, discovery and just sorting through everything that your perspective, I think is going to be unique or is unique. It's going to be because I haven't read it yet, but I'm or thrilled to jump into it. But I think your perspective is going to be extremely refreshing um, is what I should say. So as you're going through this process or maybe coming out on the other side, how does, how did you view Jesus? Like what, what about Jesus? Cause you said, you know, that you liked that he was kind of provoking you. And then how did that translate to how you viewed or understood the Bible? Right. Well, Jesus to me was the mainstay throughout the deconstruction process. And by that, I don't mean that I was faithfully following Jesus. He was just the one aspect of my upbringing and the worldview I had been handed that I wasn't eager to uh, jettison. I, I I liked the idea of Jesus throughout this entire process. And I think that's mm. pretty um, traditional to the deconstruction movement. There's a lot of like, no, we like yeah. Jesus. We just don't like the Bible. We don't like the church. We don't like the the Christian movement throughout history mm-hmm. and especially in the modern Western world. But we like the idea of Jesus. And really, who doesn't like Jesus, you he has, like I said, so many great pull quotes. Um, yeah. and Jesus advocated for the poor and the oppressed, and he humanized women in a time when they were deeply dehumanized. And he's the first great feminist, and he's the first great advocate for racial reconciliation in a meaningful way. And and against his culture and worldview, he would not yeah. have been patted and was not patted on the back for it. So Jesus, there's a reason that he's such a magnetic figure in history, even for people who aren't. Um, Christians in the traditional sense that, you know, there are people who dedicate their entire lives to studying the New Testament who don't believe Jesus is the son of God or, you know, so mm-hmm. he's, it's inarguable that, that Jesus isn't at least to some degree, like interesting and alluring. And he has been, and that was the case for me. I liked the idea of Jesus. I was fascinated by him as a person of history and as the icon of Christianity. And I think that I wanted what a lot of people in the throes of deconstruction want, which is some way to keep Jesus and even some way to keep Jesus as, you know, something more than just uh, interesting first century teacher, you know, the idea mm-hmm. of Jesus as religious guru or spiritual guru, but only if we can somehow pry him away from yeah. the thing that hurt us, you know, the church, evangelicalism, our parents, our family of origin, the Bible, whatever. And that's what I wanted to do. That's speaking from my own personal experience. I wanted very much to get Jesus out of my church. I wanted him to condemn my church. I wanted Jesus to pass judgment on the way that I was treated and the people who wronged me. 
I wanted to Jesus. I wanted Jesus to validate what I felt was my superior and more sophisticated theological <laughs> understanding of Him. Yeah, and say, no, you got it, man. You figured out what was wrong with everything, and and keep it up, keep up the good work. <laughs> um, but to do so with any kind, any level of integrity requires you to continue, you know, reading Jesus or and learning from Jesus, or or willingness, even if it's ever so slight the willingness to hear from Jesus and mm. the more that I tried to pry him away especially from the Bible I, it it became a fool's errand because well not only do we know about Jesus from the scriptures primarily but Jesus won't give up the scriptures the more you read Jesus the more that he is like so deeply invested in the the story of God or the law and the prophets and the Torah. And Jesus is most yeah. invested in the parts of the Bible that we dislike the most. So it, yeah. it becomes extremely difficult to be like, I'll take Jesus, but not Leviticus when Jesus is like, Hey, you know what it says in Leviticus, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, True. Gosh, so, you're so right. The more that I tried to get rid of everything else and hold on to Jesus, the more that I felt, and I realize it sounds like a trite spiritualism, but the, the more I felt Jesus wouldn't let me do it, it felt like he was um, saying like, look, you can get rid of everything, but I'm, I'll go with it. You know, if you yeah. want Jesus, like I'm bringing the scriptures, you know, to quote him, I've not come to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them and um. I realized in that painful process, and this is not, it wasn't like an epiphany or a moment in time or because I read a good book, but that the more I allowed myself permission to renovate rather than deconstruct, meaning mm. not tear down and throw away everything, because the more I tried to do that, it just became increasingly contradictory, you know, and like, well, if I throw away this, then I have to get rid of Jesus, but I want to keep Jesus, but now yeah. I, I want to get rid of this and instead invite myself to consider the possibility like are there different ways to understand the things that are so deeply conflicting to me is there a better way to read the bible is there um a way to understand something like the problem of evil or um the hypocrisy that i experienced that opens the door for faith the possibility of faith and at that time it wasn't me consciously being like i've got to find a way back into the historic jesus movement it was really just me trying to make up my mind about jesus is is, is he going to go and and am i going to deconvert and say like he's a cool teacher but i don't believe the things he said were true which yeah. itself is a contradiction if you say <laughs> things that aren't true you're probably not the best teacher yeah um <laughs> Or am, am I going to allow myself to surrender part of my autonomy to the process of learning and saying, I will entertain that the things Jesus says are true, even if they're things I don't want to hear right now, and hope that there might be a different way to understand them. And so that becomes the process of reconstructing or rebuilding and finding your, my way back into um, the kind of faith that makes one a pastor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the kind of faith that drives you to that level of not only are you consuming all of this, but you're now teaching other people. Yes, exactly. Oh, I'm, I feel like I'm talking to one of the smartest people on ever. So. You're absolutely not. <laughs> it's, a, it's a total put on. <laughs> like, I just feel like my brain is going to, I feel like this book is going to take me some time just because I feel like I'm going to have 
do my own critical thinking so much more than I ever have, um, which I'm very excited about. Now, there's this, the last question that I want to ask you is a question that I was recently asked, and I've been asked before, many people have. It is the question that I think sometimes can make or break someone's faith. And I would love to know your answer to that question about a good God allowing evil in the world. What do you have to say about that? That was one of the questions that was most problematic for me personally Mm -hmm. in trying to resolve faith. And the strange thing is that I I don't think that I took the position necessary. I never consciously took the position of like, this will disprove the existence of God per se. I felt uh, passively convinced of the existence of something, you know, for me, it was more reconciling the way you put it. If God, I'll, I'll grant that God exists. Sure. Um, But if the claim that he is good, all good all the time is true, then the problem of evil is not only a problem, it's the it's the problem for me personally. And I have this personality that's sort of drawn to um, wanting to understand suffering and pain and the evil of the, you know, the and there will there will be people, maybe a minority of them, but hear this and relate to me that, you know, I'm the, the type of personality that hears about something awful that happens in the world. And I need to know more understand it and read the details and not because i'm like ooh, gross i want to get shocked but i don't like it i don't want to know these things but i feel like it you know that's where my mind goes um yeah and so as someone who puts a lot of that into the their minds you know over the years and um and and dwells on it to a certain extent i mean you know i actually think and process about not like Oh my God, don't tell me anymore. I don't want to hear about this horrible story. I, I actually turn it over in my head. I was really bent out of shape, especially in a particular season of my uh, journey following Jesus, where I was like, if I can't figure this out, I can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's it wasn't a new answer. It wasn't like a novel new take on the problem of evil. It was um one of the it was inarguably the oldest answer uh, that we have on record in the Christian movement. And it was um it is classically represented and maybe half of the Christians in the world believe this, but is resolved in the autonomy of people and the autonomy of the creation itself, if that makes any sense. So the idea that it's very it's actually really simple that God wants relationships with people. And he does not want, you know, the step Stepford wives. He doesn't want automatons or robots. Mm-hmm. He wants genuine reciprocated relationship. And to do that, he has to grant creatures, created things, autonomy. So people get autonomy. And then, you know, the spiritual beings or what we would call like angels or demons or um, in the scriptures, they have different kinds of names as cherubim. And th- th- they all have autonomy as well. So there, there's this idea that. They're physical beings and spiritual beings, and everyone's free to go this way or that way. And so inevitably, you know, on a long enough timeline, if you give a human being the choice between you can do what's best for other people and every everyone else, creation itself, uh, but at the expense of yourself from time to time, or you can do what you want to do 
at the expense of other people and creation itself, human beings will choose the latter. And, yeah. you know, the thing I always say is for, for more on this, see all of human history. <laughs> yeah. And, and <laughs> once you allow for like a, a universe or created order that is genuinely free in the name of love, um, I think it virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I get into it in the book and the, the nitty gritty mm-hmm. details of it. But the the pushback then becomes, well, you know, it, it gets God off the hook because God doesn't cause evil or ordain evil. He doesn't like somehow meticulously plan. I've got to make this really bad happen because that's the only way I can make this good thing happen. It just uh, creates the problem of like, well, if God knew that everything was going to be go so wrong, why did he do it anyway? And I think, again, we know the answer to that question as people because we are relational by nature. You know, I knew and I even consciously thought about the fact that if my wife and I choose to bring kids into the world, they're going to suffer. Yeah. Not just they might, they will suffer and they could suffer incredibly. They could become sick or or some tragic, terrible thing could happen to them and to us. And I, we chose to make kids anyway. And mm-hmm. because we already, as, as sentimental and unrealistic as it sounds, we already loved them before they existed. And we did, so we made them in the name of love mm-hmm. and our love for our kids um, to this day, to me is the, you know, like uh, I would make them again. Uh, and I know that this relationship will be painful and that it could end tragically, um, mm-hmm. but I love them and their existence is worth it to me. I'm not better than God. I'm not a more a better dad than God, a more sophisticated being than God. So if I can make sense of that idea that we risk pain in the name of love and we even risk suffering, our suffering and other people's suffering in the name of love, then I can grant that God is more sophisticated than me and and understands that concept as well. Absolutely. I love everything you just said, because I mean, anytime somebody asks me that, or like, why do bad things happen to good people? I'm like, I don't know a single good person. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, don't know a single one. Uh, And and who are we to put ourselves in the position to say who is good and who is bad? You know, that we just, that's actually one of the things that I'm, trying to not do whenever it comes to my daughter is say like is I guess assign good and bad to behavior because I don't want her to think that she is only loved if her behavior is quote unquote good by the standard of the world Um, I want her to know that she's loved regardless of her behavior whether it's good or bad quote unquote but hopefully that relationship that we establish is you know, where she feels comfortable enough to bring whatever to me, which I learned from faith and thinking that God was not available to me if I was not behaving a certain way. And I was like, gosh, I don't want her to have to deal with that kind of struggle. So that is one of the things that we're doing. And I'm telling you, becoming a parent has never made me feel more loved by God than anything, because I was like, Oh, I mean, every day I'm like, I love this tiny thing so much. And you love me more than that because I can't even comprehend how much you love. And I'm like, that is wild. It is wild. And 
for you to, for you, me, I'm speaking to God when I say that, for you to see humans as terrible as we are and love us still, that's fascinating. I can 100% accept that you know more than me because you still love me despite everything in my life. It's just crazy. I agree. Yeah, that it was a huge eye opener for me as well. I remember specifically um, sitting. This is when we had our first kid. He was, you know, maybe a few months old, and I was actually sitting somewhere. Um, he wasn't there. I was like in my office or you know, like at church or something, and thinking about him the way that I would turn over like. <laughs> I don't know, an exciting upcoming event in my head. I was just sitting there thinking like, oh, my kid's awesome. I love him. And he did this funny thing today. And I'm just ruminating on my incredible affection for this little baby. And I remember it hitting me that uh, almost, you know, I I believe from the spirit of God that he was like, you know, this is this is how I think about you. And I was like, well, no, not me. But (laughs) yeah, well, no, (laughs) not me. But but sure, you know, like maybe you think about my kid that way because I can I can wrap my head around that. And he's like, no, no, Um, because we we understand as adults the brokenness of human beings. And I agree 100 percent with you. I haven't met a good person. And you know, we understand as parents that our kids are messed up and inherently, um, you know, they learn to say mine right away and they become selfish and self, they, they self-preserve and, yeah, and they lie. And, and yet I can sit here and just think about, like, I had no illusions of my son's perfection or anything. I knew that right. he was capable of being or misbehaving, I should say. And, um, but that didn't stop me from sitting there thinking, like, oh, he's awesome. He's awesome. And if mm-hmm. someone came to me and said, what's your son like? I wouldn't say, even now he's nine. If someone came to me and said, what's your son like? I wouldn't be like, well, you know, he's got an attitude problem and he disobeyed me this way this morning. I would say he's incredible. He's the coolest right. guy in the world. Um, he's interested in this. I love him for this. Uh, he's so much fun. But I, it would, it took such a leap for me to grant that kind of basic fatherly goodness to God. That, you know, yeah. oh, if someone asked God, what do you think about Josh? I would assume God would say like, well, he's a work in progress. He does this yeah. wrong. He does this wrong. And yeah. I would never talk about my kid that way. And I felt like God had to tell me over and over again, like, you're not, you're not a better dad than I am. Um, yeah. So, and we, and we all, you know, we're, we're making it sound like only parents can understand this, but anyone who loves anyone can understand this, whether it's a, a close friend or a spouse or, you know, the idea that you can see the imperfections in a person and decide to love them anyway is something that human beings understand, but then struggle to grant God. Yes, that's exactly right. We, why do we struggle to grant God that? I mean, we just can't comprehend it, I guess. Yeah. Because we can't imagine that someone is more gracious and more loving, not selfish as selfish as we are. Like, that just wants pure, honest connection and community and love. Yeah. Wild. Wild. I am so excited for your book. I'm so excited for everything that you're doing. And I'm so thankful that you um, took some time out of your day to come hang out with us at Wild Confidence. And I just can't wait to share this episode. You are amazing. Thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. I had a great time, honestly. It was great. Thanks for inviting me. 
Hey, thanks so much for hanging out today. I pray that you're able to see yourself how the Lord sees you, so you can hold your head a little higher and shine your confidence a little brighter. I would so appreciate if you would leave a review, subscribe, and share this with a friend. And of course, I want to stay connected with you. Find me on Instagram at Ainsley B. And my website is AinsleyBritton.com. See y'all later.